right, good morning. How y'all doing? How many of you like the movies? Raise your hand if you like the movie. How many of you have been to a movie in the last week? Who's been to a movie in the last week? All right. Uh, we've got that series starting next week, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But uh, I also wanted to talk about one. My wife and I went to a movie yesterday, in fact. It's called People Like Us. No big deal. But it was good. I would recommend it. It's a chick flick. How many of you like chick flicks? <laughs> I didn't say how many of you are forced to go. I said how many of you like <laughs> chick flicks? I was trying to catch, you know, who said it, they like them. I was trying to watch for the guy's hand. But, it, you know, I went honestly thinking it was kind of a chick flick, expected it to be, but it really was a little bit more than that. Good movie, good movie. But here's the real deal. My wife and I were driving home, and we were reflecting on an actress that was in the movie. And, you know, a great one. And uh, she was playing the part of a grandmother, obviously with a daughter in the movie, and then a grandson in the movie. And, and you know, it had a lot to do with the whole age and generation and family stuff. But as we talked, we were remembering a role that she played a good while back when she was opposite George Clooney as a uh, single mom. And we were saying this phrase, it seemed just like yesterday that we were watching that movie of her as this young single mom, and now here she is playing a role of a grandmother and all that. And then we were just kind of reflecting on the fact that life's, life just kind of goes by quicker than you realize. How many would say yes to that? It's kind of like a movie on fast forward or something. And uh, I just wanted to use that this morning to get us to think about where we're going this morning. But also, I wanted to introduce you, kind of like her in the role and thinking about the other role, I wanted to introduce you to an earlier version of myself. So I just wanted you to... <laughs> yes, believe it or not, that is myself and my wife sitting over here. Now, just to kind of put this in context as you're looking at it, this is about three years after I became a Christian. Now, it ought to make you wonder, what did I look like about four years ago? <laughs> this is in the 70s. No, I wasn't auditioning for Jeremiah Johnson, if you remember that movie. But I was kind of a hippie-type dude. And, and believe it or not, I went to the Citadel. And that was about three years after I got out of the Citadel. So I just wanted to grow lots of hair because I wasn't allowed to, maybe. I don't know. But let me tell you a little bit about that guy. Um, he was raised American heathen. And if you haven't heard of that denomination, they're just, no, I'm not a denomination. I was raised in a home that we didn't go to church. I mean, when I say we didn't go to church, I don't mean often. I mean ever. I remember going one time when I was a child, once. My mom says we went more. I think she's lying. But just to appease her conscience, I think. So I didn't grow up with this sense of God. I didn't, I didn't grow up with a map to how life works and how things can be. I just, it was just kind of not that way. And to be honest with you, as I got into my young adult years, uh, I, I, I didn't know how to get my needs met correctly. So I would do incorrect things to get my needs met. I drifted into drugs um, honestly, in hindsight, I think I did drugs just because I was numbing myself and escaping from a life that I just couldn't really figure out any deep meaning to. I eventually drifted into Eastern religions, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, that kind of thing, and got into transcendental meditation and all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, I've been delivered, I promise. And um, I had lots of really cool experiences. I really did. But all of that was because deep inside of me, there was a hunger. There was a sense 
that there's got to be more to this thing called life. I just had this weird hunger that pushed me towards all these things. And the good news is I did meet God, and I encountered God in a setting very similar to this one, where people believed that God was alive and well, and he still did amazing things in people's lives. So I came into faith in this kind of an environment. In a nutshell, I was smitten. When I met Jesus, when I saw God, I was smitten. How many of you believe in love at first sight? I, I experienced love at first sight. I saw Jesus, and I'm telling you, man, I was done. Over a matter of months, my friendships had changed, my habits had changed, my cycle of life had changed, obviously my marriage had changed. All, everything just was put in a whole different light, and I was smitten by this amazing God, and I was done forever. Well, I've always been one of these people who watches and just looks, you know. My wife and I love to go to the beach and just watch people, you know, and it's fascinating, by the way. Or you go to the mall and you just watch people. So I've always been that way, and I just want you to think for a minute. When was that time when you really got serious with God? And again, not to creep anybody out, but to make a distinction between a believer and a follower. When was that time when God kind of showed up in your life and you really decided, I want to follow this guy. I want to go where he goes and do what he tells me to do. So think about that for a minute, what your life was like, what the community of faith you were within was like. Because early in my journey, I would just kind of watch the church and I'd watch Christians. And there's probably many observations I could make, but a couple I would make to you are this. I had been smitten by this God. He had just arrested my heart out of drugs and, you know, just sexual misbehavior and all kinds of craziness. I was like crazy in love with God. But I noticed everybody wasn't smitten. Everybody hadn't been hit with a love stick. I mean, we, we believed in God and we sort of halfway followed, but everyone wasn't smitten with that first love. And then the second thing I noticed was even those who were smitten the honeymoon didn't always last. The hun Does that make sense? In other words, they were excited, and this is me, I noticed that the, the passion cycle, the excitement cycle, had about a six-month to three-year duration. And people would kind of be excited, and it'd last for about six months to three years, and then it would start to dwane. And that just bothered me. I thought to myself, I mean, here I am, not raised in church, presented with God in my early 20s, and I mean, I was crazy about God, and I was just like, you got to be really skilled to make God boring. And yet somehow, God was not arresting. And it had become boring to some people, and I just, I just had a hard time getting my head around that. And so it messed with me. But in that time, I realized in your notes that multi-decade sustained passion was rare. Multi-decade sustained passion. What do you mean? I'm talking about, dude, where you, you make a decision to follow Christ today, and 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, you're still as excited as you were today, or very close to it. And I found that was really pretty rare. Well, in the meantime, during this first three to five years, I started to realize that God was calling me into the ministry, and I also started to realize that he was shaping my heart for, 
kind of really what my focus and passion was going to be. And I'm going to read to you from Colossians chapter 1, a cool little passage of Scripture that kind of captures one of the big things that drives me in ministry. Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every person fully mature, and I like to say fully alive in Christ. That we could present you before God fully alive, reaching your potential in Christ. To this end, I strenuously, strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I just found early in my journey that I was passionate about longevity. What does that mean? I get in front of young people. I go up to Toronto, for instance, and I teach young people, 18 to 25, different countries. And I mean, when I look at them, I just see the potential that's ahead of them. And I like to ask them a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you. Number one, just ask you to think, period. But I want you to think decades. Think decades. What do you mean? If you keep going the way you're going right now, will you get there? How many of you have a there in your heart that you want to get to? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You might have a there for your spiritual life. You might have a there for your marriage. You might have a there for your finances. You might have a there for your physical well-being. But here's my question again. Think decades. If you keep doing what you're doing now, the way you're doing it right now, for decades, will you get where you want to be? It's an important question. And then the other question I asked them is this. Can you keep doing what you're doing the way you're doing it right now for decades? In other words, however you're doing life right now, if you keep doing it, is it sustainable? And you know, a lot of people will answer that question and say, you know what, no, I cannot keep going the way I'm going now for decades. Now my answer or my response would be this. If you can't keep going the way you're going now for decades, then change something. And I know that's harder than it sounds. So my point is, I'm about helping you figure out how can I live for decades in this love affair and exciting place with God. And how many of you agree with this statement? It's harder than it sounds. Say yes if you agree. It's just hard. We make, you know, up here, you know, I learned a long time ago. I can preach it up and, you know, like, ooh. And how many of you know it's harder to live it than it is to preach it? It's, I mean, I, I just want to give you the olive branch of peace. I'm not trying to guilt anybody this morning. This is not for the faint of heart to live a full, long life passionate for God. I read a book a while back, and uh, this gentleman studied leaders. And uh, he's a little bit into numbers. And he counted all the different leaders that were named in the Bible. And there were 500, this is in your notes, there were 500 leaders that were named in the Bible. Then there were 100 that the Bible gave some details about their life. So about 500 named, about 100 it gives some details. 49 it told how their life ended. 500 named, 100 some details, 49 how their life ended. Throw some numbers at me. How many do you think finished well? How many? Four? One. Two, can I, guess what, 13. 500 mentioned, 100 details, 49 how they ended, 13 ended well. Now here's my question to you. 
What are you going to do? What are you going to do to be one of those 13? How are you going to do your life differently so that you're one of those that ends well? Now, how many of you ever seen some of those Snickers commercials? You ever seen a Snickers? All right. How many of you ever eaten a Snickers? No, I'm kidding. All right, we're going to show a Snickers commercial, but it's going to kind of nudge us toward what I want to talk about this morning. So take a look at this commercial for just a sec. Deal, oh, man. come on, man. You've been riding me all day. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh, baby. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Eat a Snickers. Better? Better. I'm That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Isn't that great? I mean, you got to give them credit. They do pull off some pretty good stuff. But how many of you agree with the thought, you're not you when you're hungry? You're not you when you're hungry. How many of you know we act different, we grouch a little bit, whatever? Now, what I really want to do is talk about something that I believe is one of the three to five key factors that will make the difference in whether you live well and finish strong. But what I want to do is take hunger and I want to turn it around. And I want to talk about hunger as a positive, powerful force. You're not you when you're hungry. You're not you when you want something. You're not you when you've looked over that hill and there's something over there you want. And you'll climb that hill to get it. You're not you when you look at the condition of your marriage, the condition of your walk with God, and you say, I want more than this. You're not you when you're hungry. Hunger, hunger. I've watched people for 36 years now. Hunger separates us. What do I mean? There's something different going on when we admit to ourselves, energize ourselves, because we want some stuff. And obviously, underneath everything I say today, I'm talking about spiritual hunger. Now, I'm not saying all this, and don't, my intention is not to make anybody feel guilty. My, que my, my quest, if you will, my desire is to stir you, provoke you, challenge you, drag you if necessary. All right, let me give you a definition of hunger. Hunger is an intense, even uncomfortable drive or desire for something you need or want. Let me say it again. Hunger is an intense, even uncomfortable drive or desire for something you need or want. So dude, time out. Hunger's uncomfortable. Why are you encouraging us to stay hungry? Because there's a different energy in, on, and around someone when they're hungry. There's something different that's crackling through their veins when you're hungry. And what bothers me is life beats the hunger out of us. Life just kind of knocks us around until we're just kind of numb. And we're not really going after something. I believe God responds to hunger. I believe God likes hungry hearts. 
because hunger moves us. I like this statement. When hunger meets heaven, stuff happens. When hunger meets heaven, stuff happens. And we're going to talk about somebody in just a few minutes that we're going to see that. Um, my wife and I have been at this long enough that we realize there's lots of things in life we cannot manage or control. We've buried friends before their time. We've embarked on projects that we thought were going to go this way and that way, and they didn't. We've, we've worked on things to try to prevent this or that from happening, and it still happened. We've found there's lots of things in life that we cannot manage or control, but we can stay hungry. We cannot, we can do whatever it is that we have to do to not allow life to choke the hunger out of us, to where we stay wanting God to continue to do cool stuff. Let's look at the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, he says these remarkable statements, and I think what they do is capture this expression of his hunger. In Philippians 3, Verse 12, listen to some of the words and phrases that Paul uses. Now, you got to remember now, this guy wasn't some, you know, immature, just starting out kind of a Christian or whatever. This was a well-developed, I mean, this guy had attained great places in God. But listen to the way his heart still framed itself. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I wrote this statement off to the side for myself. I believe Paul lived his life in a state of anticipative pursuit. Paul never was fully satisfied. He continued to find a pressing in him towards something else that he wanted. How many of you have ever been or recently been on a, a, a fairly long drive with kids in the car? Or in my case, my wife's for the first time in our marriage not working outside the home since we've moved down here. And so she travels with me sometimes. I still travel a little bit. And some of them, you know, five, six, seven hour drives, that's kind of the limit to before flying. And uh, my wife's not used to it as much as I am. So she'll do the same thing. What does a kid ask on a journey? Are we there yet? I say, darling, quit your whining. No. <laughs> How many think that works well for me? <laughs> All right, here's the deal. After reading those verses in Philippians chapter 3, Paul, I forget what's behind me. I strain, I press toward what's ahead of me. What should our answer to the question, are we there yet, be? Now listen to what you just said. What if every one of us could somehow wrestle that thing to the ground so that never for the rest of our breathing life do we ever say yes? Are we there yet? No. No. Now, what am I trying to say to you? If your answer is yes, you're probably coasting. 
If your answer is yes, you're probably coasting. And if you're coasting, I have bad news for you. Coasting kills. Dude, what do you mean coasting kills? First of all, let's, let me tell you what coasting is. Coasting means, imagine you're on a bike and you're sliding or rolling down a hill without pedaling. That's coasting. Sli uh, coasting is wanting progress without any personal investment. Coasting is wanting to move forward without applying any current pressure or effort. Using, coasting is when you're living off of, listen now, past momentum. Now, I'm saying all this because I love you. I'm saying it because I want you five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, I want you to be pleased with what God's done to you and through you. I want you to have a life unfolding around you that you're just blown away and amazed by. I promise you, if you coast, that will not be your story. It just won't be. Now, why do I say coasting kills? Because coasting kills progress. Coasting kills passion. And you know what's crazy? They've even found coasting kills your brain. The pile of mush between your ears. God created you to need something beyond your current possession that you're striving for. God created you to function at your best when you're reaching for something just beyond what you currently have. Let me read you a statement from a book that I read, and it was about the brain, and here's what it said. Your brain is designed by its creator God to drift into a subdued state in the absence of challenge and change. Now, I'm going to read that again. Your brain is designed by God to drift into slumber or a subdued, depressed state in the absence of challenge and change. Actually, what happens is when you're not facing new experiences, new information, new relationships, and new opportunities, what happens is the family of chemicals and hormones that runs your brain, you might say, are on the depressed, low-energy side of the scale. Now listen to this next statement. The chemicals and hormones of excitement, arousal, and passion are released in your brain when you reach toward and embrace something at the edge of your current comfort zone. In other words, when you come to the edge of your comfort zone and look over there and see something you want, but it's going to make me uncomfortable. I'm going to have to learn some new stuff. I'm going to have to stretch in some areas I'm not used to. When you do that and say yes, this flood of chemicals that charges you and excites you is released. So literally, not only is it a spiritual issue, but God has designed you even physically that you're at your best when you're living in that tension between your current comfort zone and what's just beyond or outside of it. If you look in your notes, there's a couple of statements here. I believe the cry of a hungry heart, the cry of a hungry heart, there's more. Say there's more one time. Turn to your neighbor and say there's more. Now here's the deal. If you believe there's more, it'll affect the way you marshal your resources. There's more to the gospel than a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
How many of you thank God you're going to miss hell and make heaven? I thank God Jesus paid a price, so I'm going to miss hell and make heaven. I'm really, really grateful for that. But it drives me crazy that we treat Christianity like that. That's like that's the big enchilada. God's called you into this amazing life. The next statement, there's more. Say there's more again. There's more to Christianity than forgiveness. I'm, dude, trust me. I'm grateful I'm forgiven for some of the stupid things I've done. It still hurts my heart to think of damage I've done to other human souls. And I'm so grateful that I've been forgiven for that. But that's not all I got. I got the person of Jesus living inside of me. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the love of the Father. I have you guys to help me, spur me, draw me, drag me into a life that's beyond anything I could have dreamed of. I'm looking forward to heaven, but I ain't any, I'm not in any hurry to get there. Not because I don't want to die. I'm having too much fun. Walking with God, challenging things, messing with your heads. Let me give you a couple statements I love. What you were saved for is more important than what you were saved from. What you were saved for is more important than what you were saved from. God has a plan for you. God wants to draw you into something amazing. Another way to say the same thing, what you were saved into is more important than what you were saved out of. I love hearing great testimonies of God pulling people out of crazy lifestyles. I love hearing how God reaches into darkness, hell itself even, and pulls people out. But that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Now he wants to turn us into the very people who walk back into hell and drag people out. I'm telling you, man, God's got a journey planned for you. And it's exciting and it's fun. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? What is it that might kick your switch and just charge you up? Let me talk about a friend of mine over in Mark chapter 10, a guy named Blind Bartimaeus. I really like to call him my hungry friend. This is really where I got this whole phrase, when hunger meets heaven. But if you look at this whole area here, Mark chapter 10, it starts like this. Then they came to Jericho. Notice there's a period there, and that's gonna, I know it's a little weird to draw attention to, but you'll see why in a second. Then it says, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. So if you just read it at face value, it sounds like they came in and out. They came to Jericho, they left Jericho. So not the truth. Why is it important? Because the story of this gentleman named Blind Bartimaeus doesn't make sense unless you realize what affected him. So we're going to jump over to Matthew 4 real quick. And let's look at what Jesus did everywhere he went. Jesus went, this is Matthew 4, 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain. There's people in these conditions right here in this room. The demon-possessed, hopefully not those, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. 
Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, please remember as we go back to Mark 10. Then they came to Jericho, period, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. Why was this blind guy so excited? Because Jesus had just turned Jericho on its head. Jesus had just come into Jericho, held meetings, and they were dragging sick people from everywhere. And I mean, the place was going crazy. So, when he, the blind guy, begging, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He began to draw attention to himself. He's over here in this big old crowd, and he, what is it? What's going on? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He immediately begins to shout, Jesus, son of David. Now, to you and I, son of David, you know, whatever, it's just a phrase, was not just a phrase to them. That was a messianic title. So when he said Jesus, son of David, what he was saying was, Jesus, the Messiah, come over here and heal me because I deserve it. Because I tithe, because I'm a good person. Is that what he said? Have mercy on me. I don't deserve it, but please do it anyways. He wanted something. This dude was hungry. Look at the next verse. Many rebuked him. How many of you know the minute you turn your heart towards something you want, there's always somebody around that says, now darling, don't get your hopes up. Now, honestly, do some people go after stuff that they're probably not going to happen and they might get hurt and disappointed? Sure. But if you ask me which way I'd rather err, I'd rather be around people going after too much than people going after too little. Let me say that again. I'd rather be around people going after too much than people going after too little. So let's see what happened. Many rebuked him, and he told, they told him to be quiet. What did it do? He just got rowdier. When was the last time you wanted something from God so badly that you acted like an idiot? When was the last time you wanted something from God so badly that you rearranged your entire schedule to pursue it? You got up at a different time. You went to bed at a different time. You changed your habits. You read different books. You hung around different people. When was the last time you wanted something from God so badly you rearranged your whole life to accommodate that pursuit? I love this next part. Verse 49, Jesus stopped. Jesus, God, stopped and said, bring him over here. Please don't miss this. Jesus is walking from one place. He's leaving Jericho. What drew his attention? Hunger. What got the attention of Almighty God clothed in flesh? Hunger. Hunger got God's attention. Throwing aside his cloak, uh, call him, so they call the blind man, cheer up on, on your feet, he's calling. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Now, how many of you agree that Jesus was probably a pretty smart guy? Yes or no? Yeah. All right, you gotta, you gotta go like, what? Wait a minute here, verse 51. Jesus is a pretty smart guy. He's got a blind beggar standing in front of him, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
How many think that's kind of weird? A blind beggar. What do you want today? You know, a new car? What was going on right there? He wanted this blind beggar to take the first and possibly most powerful step of faith, and that's daring to say, I want. You know what breaks my heart? Most people's wanter is broken. Most people's wanter is broken. Life has just beat it out of us. I look in your eyes. Every one of you started life at some point with a dream, with a desire, with a fire, with a passion. And you think you've made too many mistakes. You're so far off course, you can't get back. I beg you, if I could, I'd walk to every one of you and make eye contact. I beg you, it's never too late with God. But listen to me. He said to this blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? You've got to have the courage to say, I want. It takes faith to say that. Because it hurts to admit you want it and not get it. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. What do you want today? What do you want, man? I want some stuff, man. I'd do anything on this stage right now to move you. I want you to be moved. I want it bad. Because I want you to scratch your way toward the life God laid out for you. I want you to get closer and closer and closer to the twinkle in God's eye when you were created. I want you there. I want you to look at your life and just say, God, how did you do this? Man, it's awesome. What do you want? What do you want in your marriage? What do you want in your spiritual life? What do you want in your finances? It's the start of this thing. you got to have the courage to say it. Rabbi, I want to see. How does this story end? I'll think about it. No. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. What steals our hunger? Let's run through these, this list real quick. What steals our hunger? The first one is what we've already hinted at, a fear of disappointment. A fear of disappointment. Why do we not have decades-long sustained hunger for God and all the other things in life? Life just kind of beats the, beats the hope out of us. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God's waiting for you 
to make the ask. The second thing that is an enemy of our hunger is religion. And by religion, I don't mean this, church. This would be my definition, and don't try to write it down. A rigid, institutionalized system of beliefs and practices about God, what he's like, and what he'll do. Religion is some system that kind of boxes God up, and this is what he'll do, and it was all back there and out there in front of us. He doesn't do much now. Any religion that doesn't want to engage the living God now, um, it's just going to rob your ability to be hungry. And if you look at Matthew 15, 6, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. The next thing that robs us of our hunger is what the Bible calls the flesh. That's kind of a weird word. We don't use that a whole lot in this kind of a way anymore. But it really means that part of you that pulls you away from God instead of toward God. In my experience, I'd have to say this to you. That's never going to go away. You're sitting in front of the TV and a little voice says, you know, you've seen this before. Why don't you go read the word? That's the pull of the spirit. And your flesh says, nah, don't feel like it. Now, I'm not saying that to creep you out. I'm saying it to say this. That's never going to go away. For the rest of your life, there's something built into this flesh that wants to go away from God. And you just have to make up your mind. I'm going to fight it for the rest of my life. If you look at it in Scripture, Galatians 5 says this, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not able to do whatever you want. It's always going to be a fight to move yourself toward God. The next one, the next enemy of hunger is the natural mind that's not open to the supernatural. We're smart people. We've got computers and science, and we figured all kinds of stuff out. So it's hard for us to leave room in our heart for God to do something that's beyond explanation. I just encourage you to open your heart, open your mind, and open your eyes to embrace the supernatural. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit for their foolishness to him. I'll take all the foolishness God wants to send my way. I hope I encounter things that don't make sense to me. The last enemy of hunger is complacency. And complacency means to be content, which is a good thing, but to a fault. It means to be content to the point that you're no longer hungry. You might say it this way, complacency is the opposite of hunger. All right, how do you stay hungry? I was going to do the usual, you know, go to church, read your Bible, pray, and I just thought, you know, you'd kind of check out, oh, he's just doing that checklist stuff. So I wanted to come up with a different way of saying it, but I'm really talking kind of about the same thing. Find a group of people going somewhere exciting in God and go with them. Find a group of people that are on an adventure and go with them. Under the you need part, three things you need. One I've just stated, you need an adventure. You need something that gives you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. You need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You need to find a group of people that are scaling a mountain that scares you a little bit. If it doesn't scare you a little bit, you're not hungry enough. The second thing you need is a map. Obviously, I'd put in parentheses the Bible. 
You need a map that kind of lays out the lay of the land, how this stuff works. And then the third thing you need is a tour guide, T-O-U-R, a tour guide. What do you mean by that? A tour guide is someone who's been where you want to go or they currently live there. A tour guide is not a travel agent that sits at a desk mapping out a journey to somewhere they've never been and aren't ever going. You want to find someone who's been where you want to be in God, who's been where you want to be in your marriage, who's been where you want to be in your finances. Find a tour guide. Now, we have a, a system around here where we try to create this very connection for you. It's called Inside Track. And we don't have one running in July, but we'll have one starting August 1st. What is that? Well, every service, after the service, we have a room that you go and meet with a bunch of people, and here's the deal. There's a bunch of people that are on an adventure, and they've got a map, and we've got some tour guides. It's a great way for you to get connected to some people that are on a journey that you can join and stretch yourself. So I just want to challenge you as we wind up today. I'm going to pray for you and just trust God to strip any guilt that might have tried to seep out of this. I don't want any guilt. Oh, I'm, I should be more hungry. I just want you to feel God challenging you. Let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your presence here in the room. I thank you for your love. I thank you, God, that for every single person in this room, you have a plan. You have a purpose. And not one of them has taken their life to such a place that you can't get them where you want them to be. Father, I pray that you would awaken, resurrect if necessary, the wanter that's inside each of us. I pray that you would help dust off some of the dreams that we've had. Father, I pray that you light the fire in the eyes hearts and souls of my friends in this room. And I pray that you help them to realize that that pull they feel is the love of their Father drawing them into a life that's better than they could ever imagine. And I thank you for it, sir, in Jesus' name. Amen.